dedicated to evangelizing and winning souls for heaven. Billions of dollars are spent each year on this global effort. However, there's a sinister and gut-wrenching side to this teaching as well. If you don't give your heart to the Lord in this life, the result is eternal life in hellfire. For those billions who are so unfortunate as to not be exposed to the so-called truth of the Bible, their fate is supposedly sealed, yet an increasing number of those calling themselves Christian are beginning to question the reality of an ever-burning hell. Modern Christianity has all kinds of ideas about what happens after death, but how well do they fit with the true teachings of the Bible? Are babies and heathens really eternally lost and burning in hellfire? Is that what a loving and eternally fair God of your Bible teaches? Is today really humanity's last chance for salvation? On today's program, we have two guests that will dig into the Bible and into history and provide you with the real answers to some of these biblical questions. A warning for you, though. The answer to today's question, is today really your last chance for salvation, may differ from what you've been previously taught from the Bible. I'd like to introduce today a returning guest, Mr. Wally Smith. Mr. Smith is a TW Now presenter, a Tomorrow's World telecast writer, and he knows this topic very well. I'd also like to introduce Dr. Richard Franz, who's joining us via Skype from St. Louis. Dr. Franz is a minister, a Bible teacher, and has taught previously at the university level. Welcome, Dr. Franz. It's good to have you with us here for the first time. And Mr. Smith, welcome back. It's good to have you with us as well. Thank you. For those of you who are joining us, again, welcome, but I'd also like to invite you to pose questions to us. So if you have any questions as we go on today, uh, type them in, send them to us, and we'll do our best to get to them. Gentlemen, let me start with question number one for today. And Dr. Franz, let me ask you first off, what does modern Christianity teach us about what happens after death? Let's all get on the same page here to begin with. All right, well, it's a privilege and a pleasure to uh, be invited to be part of this program. I'm a, a longtime viewer. You know, there's as many opinions on what happens after we die as there are uh, denominations in Christianity. Uh, but the largest denomination in Christianity puts it pretty succinctly. They, they have their mind made up. The Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that every soul is immortal, and it doesn't perish but it separates from the body at death. And then it's reunited at the final resurrection. So at the moment of birth, I mean the moment of death, the soul separates from the body and then is judged immediately and enters into heaven. Uh, so that's the Christian teaching, that's Catholic teaching on it, although Protestants have their ideas too. Mr. Smith, can you share one or two of those Protestant ideas? Uh, well, well, it really does differ. There's no particular unifying authority for all quote-unquote, you know, kind of Christian denominations. Uh, but among them are certainly that you go to heaven right after death or you go to hell. Uh, but at the same time, you, uh, what I've seen is an increasing number of, I'm not entirely sure what to call it, but Christians who don't really embrace any particular biblical teaching because they've gotten caught up in evolution, uh, you know, the, some feelings of science that this is the only life we have, and they call themselves Christian, but they're just open to the idea that this life is all there is, and so they're supposed to live a good life now, and that there is no afterlife at all. For many of them, it seems like they're trying to flee the idea of hell more than a, um, looking for something that's just scripturally accurate. But actually, it seems like the ideas are kind of all over the board. Okay. Any thoughts, Dr. Franz, about this whole idea of uh, fleeing the idea of hell? 
Well, it's interesting. Uh, we, we all want the, uh, the good slice of the pie and, and not, the, not the leftovers. We, we don't want to go to hell. And so the common teaching is that if we're good, we'll be rewarded. And if we're, we're not, we'll be rewarded in kind to go to hell. But if I may, just to uh, look at a, a, a Dateline report from a couple years ago, it says fewer Americans believe in God, but they still believe in an afterlife. This is a report done by the University of uh, San Diego State University, Florida Atlantic University, and Case Western Reserve University. And it says that fewer, this is a quote, fewer people participated in religion or prayed, but more believed in an afterlife. And it is that part of growing entitlement mentality, thinking that we could get something from nothing. So again, like Mr. Smith said, the, the opinions are all over. Um, and is it's really it's it seems like they people think it's open for debate. Yeah, one of the interesting ideas I was exposed to uh, in some research several years ago, and I'd, I'd heard about the idea before, but to see it explained so plainly was the idea of an age of accountability, because if you believe that when you die you go to heaven or hell, but babies seem innocent. There, there's doctrines that believe, no, they're born completely sinful already, so they would be doomed to hell if they died. But at the same time, the idea that if a baby who hasn't had some water sprinkled on its head or been through some sort of ritual, that doesn't seem quite fair. And so the idea was, well, there's a certain age at which you become accountable for your sins, and under that age, you're not accountable and can still go to heaven. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, it, it still worries. I know a lot of Protestant parents that I've talked to, because they have a child who's getting to be 10, 11, 12, and they're wondering, do I need to press my child into baptism because I don't want them to die and go to hell? My own grandmother, when I was younger, I took a trip when I was around 11, 12, 13 years old, and she told me when I got back, she was so afraid the plane would crash and I would go to hell. And it really caught me off guard, but in looking at it, I understand why she worried about that. I can certainly think of myself at 13, and I was pretty accountable for what I was doing. Mm -hmm. well, it's really sobering when you think about it, because here you have all of these individuals, young people, that you're talking about. And if your understanding of the scripture <clears throat> is that if you don't accept Jesus Christ in this life by a certain age and you die, you will go to hell, uh, that can really be disconcerting for people. Right. I've known pers people personally who've really been upset uh, by situations like that, early death of a loved one. Right. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't hold it against her so much because if my grandson were in a similar circumstance and that was the possibility that after 13 years or so of life, he would spend the next eternity suffering for billions and billions of years when that's only the beginning. Uh, honestly, I'm not sure how she could have slept at night. It really is quite a challenge. So if those who, are, uh, who don't come to Christ, if the unrighteous don't come to Christ, and they're burning in an eternal hellfire. What does that teaching suggest about God the Father? Um, if it, it seems like the majority of people would be around the world would be burning in a hellfire when they die. What does that suggest about God the Father? What does that suggest about uh, the power of Satan the devil? Dr. Franz, any thoughts? Well, it's interesting uh, if if the uh, stats are true, and we don't have any reason to believe otherwise, but about 2 billion out of the almost 8 billion people on earth today uh, consider themselves Christian in one form or fashion. Uh, so that leaves us uh, 6 billion people that God the Father, who created the heavens and the earth from nothing, 
is un unable to affect the majority of the people. And down through history, that fact still holds true, is that the majority of the world's population has never been Christian. So it would indicate, if we just looked at the numbers and just left it at that, it would indicate that, well, uh, God isn't always as powerful as we thought. In fact, if it's a numbers game, Satan certainly is uh, on, on the top side of it. Hmm. Uh, that's uh, that, something I know I've thought about a lot as well. Uh, the, the estimates of how many people have lived on Earth vary from 60 billion to 100 billion. I've seen a lot of different numbers. And you'd have to accept that the vast majority of those have never heard of the name of Jesus Christ, uh, wouldn't have had any sort of opportunity to, to escape their fate into an ever-burning hellfire. And these are all individuals God created in His own image. The idea that He would create a system in which the vast majority of individuals created in His own image that he would knowingly create that, that so many would just be tossed aside, not simply, actually more than tossed aside, be tortured for all eternity. Well, and uh, most of them have lived or lived before there was even a Jesus Christ. That's right, before, they, before there would have been, even been an opportunity to hear any of the truth like that. Hmm. So here comes the question. We get our doctrines, and modern Christianity gets many of its doctrines, uh, perhaps not as much as they think, from the Scripture. Uh, what kind of Scriptures are used? Which Scriptures are used? What are some of the Scriptures that are used to support the idea that uh, the saved go to heaven while the unsaved burn in hell? My mind, goes to, my mind goes to Ecclesiastes 12, and I'll just read it. It says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. It gives us the impression, it would give one the impression, if we just took that scripture alone, that, well, look, here it is. There's a teaching that, from the Bible that indicates the spirit goes, returns to God. But the Bible says that there is a spirit in man. Uh, that it's not it's it's not that he is one, or it is that he is one. It's it's while we're while our spirit doesn't return to God upon death, it does represent a conscious entity, and then we'd have to get into the whole idea of the resurrections. But Ecclesiastes itself makes it plain that the dead know nothing, so it's not a level of consciousness that returns to God. And Jesus clearly described this uh, in an event with Peter, John, and James. Mm -hmm when they saw the glorified bodies of right. uh, Moses and Elijah in a vision. That wasn't a current reality, but oftentimes that's, that would be used out of context uh, to support uh, this life after death um, or eternal life uh, ongoing. Okay. Another verse, Another verse. that is often used uh, is, and, and it's, we're talking about Bible verses, so there's definitely a truth there, but it's a mm -hmm. matter of understanding them properly. And that is in Revelation 20, it talks about a lake of fire. Actually, the book of Revelation mentions a lake of fire in multiple places. Uh, Jesus Christ talks about uh, uh, Gehenna, you know, a place of fire into which the wicked are thrown. And so that certainly contributes to that. Now, what you do with those ideas, you have to understand them plainly, and other verses have to be brought to bear. But I don't think anyone's denying that there is not a lake of fire. Uh, but that is something that, that you hear people talk about here. Children threaten. It's like, oh, you're going to the lake of fire, brother or sister who stuck your tongue out at me, or whatever the case is. But I, I see that, that verse bandied about a lot. Okay. Any other scriptures that, you're think, that you think of that are used? In, in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 
10 and verse 28, it says, Do not fear those that can kill the body, but can not destroy the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now that word soul just means breath. And what, it's, what most people are taught in the churches of the world is that the soul is immortal and can't be destroyed. But here God, Jesus, the words of Jesus Christ is plainly saying, no, in, in fact, they can be destroyed. Uh, that the soul can be destroyed. And the word soul from the Old Testament just means a, a living being. Uh, a man is a living being. You are a soul. You don't have a soul. It's, it's the life that's in us. Uh, we, God put that life in us at, right at the beginning when we, he created us from the dust of the earth. Okay. Yeah, I mentioned yeah, on actually our telecast, Tomorrow's World once, that, uh, you know, the, if anyone can actually show me in the Bible where there's an immortal soul that never dies or is destroyed and is indestructible, you know, let me know. And we did get a lot of letters, uh, but many of them uh, fell across the very verse that Dr. Franz has mentioned, that God says he, he can destroy, you know, the soul. It's not something indestructible. Uh, another passage that's often used that I've, I've frequently had to address is Jesus Christ's parable about Lazarus and the rich man. And uh, I know right now you're just asking about passages that people use, not necessarily the proper application of them. But it is important to note that Jesus Christ, it's a parable. The Bible gives the parable setting. And also we have to ask ourselves, should we interpret the entire Bible through the lens of a parable? Or should we allow the rest of the Bible to help us understand that parable the way Jesus Christ would have intended it? And so I recognize it's a popular question, but at the same time, there is a way to understand these things, and there's a proper approach to the Bible in understanding these things. Well, I think about Isaiah, who talks about we need to take precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Right. He says it again, here a little, there a little. So we can't just extract these verses and take meaning out of them by themselves. We have to put them into the context of the whole Bible. As we begin to do that, it leads me to another question. And what kind of scriptures are there that give us a clearer understanding of what happens after death? Because if we don't take precept upon precept, line upon line, we actually run into scriptures contradicting each other. And right. if the Bible's the mind of God, we know that the Bible can't contradict itself. Right. So what kind of scriptures are there that give us a clear indication of what really happens after death, both um, on the good side and on the not so good side? Dr. Franz? Well, I read out of Ecclesiastes earlier, and uh, going to uh, chapter 9 in Ecclesiastes, it talks about that the dead know nothing. Uh, they don't have any, 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 any love, that there's no feelings there anymore. They're not able to make plans. Uh, when we talk about the dead, the dead it really means dead, that they're, they are they're without life. They're uh, non-existent, and the Bible often refers to that as sleep, but coming into the New Testament, uh, we can also read in the book of Acts and uh, in, in John in, a, in John's Gospel uh, that people aren't alive and in heaven. Uh, they're not able to uh, praise God. And we could you could look through the book of Psalms and the Psalms of David on how he was actually uh, telling God, um, uh, I, I want to I want to be this way. I want to live this life, preserve my life, that I could continue to worship you and praise you. So David understood what, what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. In terms of focusing on the, the, the topic, the title, uh, is this the last opportunity or the only opportunity for all of these people? Uh, we're talking about their status when they die, 
But then that's the question is, for those who've, say, never heard uh, the truth expounded, those who've never been given an opportunity to really understand, when they die, is that it? Is there no opportunity, regardless of what their state is going to be? And there are a number of verses that, that talk about that. What my, one of my favorite collections, if you look at Matthew chapter 11, Jesus Christ addresses Chorazin, uh, Bethsaida. Um, he talks to the, in Capernaum, he talks mm -hmm. to the people of these cities that, in which he was doing miracles. And he says, if these miracles were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. You guys aren't repenting, but they actually would have changed their ways. And we have to ask, well, if that's the case, why were they denied the opportunity? If God knows they actually would have repented. It's not like saying they weren't shown because they wouldn't have reacted. We have the testimony of Jesus Christ that they would have responded. And yet we have Acts chapter 10, the words of Peter, Romans chapter 2, the words of Paul, saying that God is not a respecter of persons. He's not going to be unfair. No one is going to experience eternal punishment of any sort somehow claiming that God wasn't fair to them and didn't give them an opportunity. So I, I think those scriptures speak very importantly uh, to this particular topic. So God never opened up an opportunity for Chorazin uh, and, and some of these other cities, um, Tyre, Sidon. Right. Right. He never gave them a chance knowing that if he did, they would repent. So obviously, and we went, might be able to hit on a couple of scriptures there as well, but if God didn't give them a chance knowing they would repent, he's not condemning them to a hell fire because he didn't give them a chance. Right. Yeah, he, was he denying them the opportunity? If he knew that, that miracles, that, that the things that Jesus Christ did within their city would have saved them, if you put it that way, mm -hmm. then couldn't we ask like, like Abraham? When God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham asked, uh, well, you know, shall the judge of all the earth not do right? God sort of gives us that permission to ask that question, and it does prod us to think, okay, if God knows people of the past would have repented, given an actual opportunity, um, then, uh, then won't there be such an opportunity? Mm. Dr. Franz? And absolutely. It's, there's a, it's interesting. Job even asks, shall a man live again? Uh, so he had a little bit of understanding, but a, a lot of folks will use a scripture out of 2 Corinthians 6 uh, that talks about an acceptable time. I have heard that in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Well, the scriptures that Mr. Smith just referred to indicate that, well, this isn't the only day of salvation. Uh, Paul was writing this scripture, Paul was writing the, the second letter to Corinthians, it was the, the church at Corinth. It was the people that have been called by God uh, now and have brought and have, and have Christ in their lives and have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So for them, certainly that is their day of salvation. But this letter wasn't going out to the rest of the world, this letter wasn't being read uh, so to speak, on, on a news program at night. This was for a specific group of people, part of, part of the part of the Church of God. Right. I think I, I, talking about the letters of uh, one of the most inspiring passages to me is Paul's letter in Romans. And if you look at the passage where he's addressing the Jews of his day, because so many of them were not accepting his message. And if you look at Romans nine, ten, eleven, he talks about how God is purposefully blinding some in this age to work. It's a complicated topic to talk about in detail, 
but to work his plan in a particular order. And he says very explicitly that God hasn't actually turned them aside forever. And these are Jews who were dying in his day. But he says in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved. How would that make any kind of sense unless there was another opportunity? And I do feel a book of the Bible that many dismiss because it is prophetic, but makes it explicit that there's an opportunity is the book of Revelation. Revelation 20 speaks of all the dead, small and great, being raised up, and books being opened. The Greek there for, for books, Biblia, is, is, is the Bible. And how the book of life is also opened up. So you're talking about these books, and they were judged according to the things in the book. And there's a passage you were referring to earlier as we were discussing uh, that Peter talks about in terms of people being judged now. The, uh, uh, the people of the church that, that are being called in this age are being judged now, Peter says. And yet Revelation 20 talks about people being judged at a later time, uh, those who had died and were in the graves and are no longer living. So even the Bible itself explicitly talks about a future time of judgment. And yet if that time had already transpired in this life, there would be no need for a future time. You talk about how uh, there is a time of judgment for the people of God T to begin with. Uh, judgment has begun in the house of God, Peter says. <clears throat> yet a coming judgment for the vast majority of mankind in the future. Uh, one of the things that comes to my mind actually is the reason that Christ spoke in parables. And maybe one of you, Dr. Franz, maybe you can mention if, if it comes to mind, Christ actually explained, I think it's in um, Matthew 13, why he spoke in parables and why he didn't. Well, at, the, at that time when, when Christ was speaking and he was speaking in parables and they were asking him, even the disciples weren't uh, exactly sure what he was speaking of. And uh, he said it was, it was, it's not given to them right now to understand. He wasn't speaking in parables to make it easier understood. He's speaking in parables because he didn't, he wasn't, the message wasn't being open to the world at that time. It was just for a select few. And, and Christ talks about in the book of John that unless the Father draws you, uh, you, you, you won't come to the Son, you won't come to Jesus Christ. Uh, so there's a selective process right now that's going on that the whole world isn't, isn't, uh, doesn't have that privilege of being called now and being set aside by God as part of the first fruits. I want to get to a question. Uh, I'll ask you a question, but I want to then hit the, uh, a question that was written into us. Question coming is, when is this other opportunity coming? When is the opportunity for all of mankind coming if it hasn't come yet? Question, though, that I want to ask you that was sent into us. Uh, Mr. Smith, you asked about what are the responsible age mm -hmm. for a child uh, with baptism. Uh, question point blank now is what is the responsible age for a child? <laughs> well, that's a good question. How old are my children now? Let me, uh, let me think about it. Um, thank you for the question. And it, it's a misunderstanding in terms of that there is a special age. The Bible talks about there are cases where, say, the Israelites were held accountable for the behavior in the wilderness, and some people try to pull an age out of that. The fact is, it's to ask the question, when are we held accountable? is to misunderstand what the Bible says about God's plan as well as what He's doing in us. We're accountable from the very first sin. The idea that somehow before you're eight or nine or ten, whatever the age might be, that you don't know that you're sinning. I've seen the faces of children. I love them very much. We have four sons myself, but there's times when they know they're doing the wrong thing. The fact is God is allowing us to live in this life and learn our lessons because He's either going to open our mind and work with us in this life or 
His plan is to bring us up in a later resurrection according to His plan and purposes so that we don't have to worry whether or not there's a particular age where they cross the age and held accountable. We can take the knowledge that they're held accountable like all of us for every decision they make. Jesus Christ says there's not a word on our tongues that we will not be held accountable for. But understand that God is actually fair and just. And if He's not working with someone in this life to open their mind and actually call them in this life, then it's a plan that He's working for, you know, for the later physical resurrection, that there will still be an opportunity. We don't have to worry about them squandering an opportunity, you know, in this life, in and of themselves, just because they're children. Truly, the, the age of judgment isn't the age of judgment on us all uh, when, uh, when we're first able to take steps and grab th something off the coffee table and throw it down on the floor. Uh, don't our parents hold us accountable at that time? Have we not met children in a grocery store who are, who are looking for the boundary and they, uh, they think they could find it by slapping the floor and kicking at it? Uh, they're held accountable. They're, they're, those aren't, aren't held accountable, but we're held accountable from the get-go because uh, we need to learn uh, certain behaviors and certain patterns because actually it's the choices that we are making now that are going to dictate uh, what, our, what our life is like, not only in this age, but in tomorrow's world. Right. You know, right. when you understand God's purpose, He's trying to build character in us. And a child who's making decisions is, is building characters. People tend to think of it as somehow you've got to, you have to just wear a certain name badge that says, well, I'm going to heaven or I'm going to hell, as opposed to what is God doing with you in your whole life? All your choices are a part of that. It's a matter of striving to bring a child up his entire life from the moment they're born as best you can into a relationship with God. Uh, and worrying about any mythical age of accountability is not a concern because God is great enough to work through that kind of instruction in His plan uh, to bring that child to Him, uh, to him whenever that is, that is a part of His plan. So I guess the point-blank question is, is today the last opportunity or the only opportunities for salvation? And if not, does God give second chances? Dr. Franz? In a word, no. <laughs> uh, no, God doesn't give second chances. He gives fair opportunity, and He'll give fair opportunity to, to all. Uh, again, we're... We're made in His image, and He wants none to perish. But He's giving us a small group of people now, uh, and previous, between now and the time of Christ, and mostly, uh, to understand His truth, and to, to live by that, and to learn the lessons of this life, to be able to teach uh, in the coming kingdom of God. Uh, but if, if we don't do, if we don't live up to God's purposes now, those that are being called and being used by God, this is, like we read in, in Corinthians, this is our day of salvation. Now, for the folks that aren't being called of God, that don't have this understanding, they will have, they'll have an opportunity. It just not, it won't be today. But again, that's God's choice on who he calls now and who he doesn't. And those of us that are being called, we have to make the most of the opportunity today because this is our time. Right. In John 6, 44, Jesus Christ says very plainly, no man can come to me unless the Father call him. And then Paul's very plain in, uh, to the Corinthians where he says that God, to paraphrase, is not calling everyone. He's not calling the mighty and, and the wise and the powerful necessarily. He's calling the lowly. He's calling the people that 
don't have quite so much to brag about so that no flesh will be able to glory. So people have one opportunity, but it's a matter of when God opens that door. And that's not on us. God opens the door. Now, when He opens that door, that is our opportunity. We truly must walk through that. But the Scriptures make plain that those who died in this life without having that door open to them, there is a resurrection coming described in, uh, in Revelation 20, actually in Ezekiel as well, that they will have that opportunity they simply did not have in this life. So there's not, there's not second chances. This is an idea about second chances. The fact that Jesus Christ died for us is the second chance that we get. Rather, it's a matter of when do we receive our first opportunity. Okay. And so this is this great white throne judgment right. that Revelation, John and Revelation is talking about, this judgment period where people will have the opportunity to choose, but right. knowingly choose. Right. So the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Muslims will finally have their minds open and they'll have the opportunity that the few chosen have today? Yes, I think so. In fact, when you mention some of those in particular, we have to think of some of these nations, uh, say some particular nations with a very repressive, uh, oppressive religion, where even if you try to get the truth into those nations, which we certainly try to do our part, um, there are children who grow up, live and die, and never get to hear it because of the, the really violent oppression against that message. Will God forget the small child in that nation? who happens to die, or will he remember them? I think the Bible says he will remember them. Okay. We are winding down, gentlemen. We're running out of time, which is seems like it's always the case. But we have had a chance to touch on a number of things today. I've got a final question for you. What is the key, or what is a key takeaway point that you'd like to leave the audience with today? And Dr. Franz, if you don't mind, let's go ahead and start with you. Certainly. I think the key takeaway is especially for the people that are being called by God at this age, it's so vitally important that we stick with the truth and don't let any, the Bible says, to take our crown because most of us have family members um, near and far that aren't being called of this age and they're going to come up in a time of judgment and they're going to be expecting to see us there because they, they might not agree with what we practice now. They, might, they might, might not even know what we practice now. But when they come up in that judgment period, they're going to have an understanding and they're going to be looking for us on where we at because they knew that we were part of this church. So I guess my, my, my parting shot is uh, we need to stay close to God and to grow in grace and knowledge on a, on a daily basis and, and not give up and not turn away. Uh, but to stick to the truth and hold fast to that which has been given us. Okay, thank you. Mr. Smith. Well, thank you. For myself, I think I would focus on questions. Uh, one, asking, in terms of a takeaway, be willing to ask yourself and accept answers you don't necessarily feel uncomfortable but seem to be accurate. Is God committed to what He says in the Bible? The Bible says very plainly there's there's no name under heaven by which we may be saved other than Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, ask myself, what does that mean for the vast majority of humanity? It really would mean that they are doomed to not receive whatever that salvation is. And then ask yourself, is God fair? Like Abraham was willing to ask about Sodom and Gomorrah, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And if, if that leaves you uncomfortable with what you currently believe, as it did me once when I was younger, 
it, what it did lead me to is to the Bible. Where can I find the answers? If I believe that God is fair, and yet what I've learned in the past about the supposed destiny of mankind isn't fair, then where are those answers? And those answers are in the Bible. Mm. That's exciting that there are answers in the Bible. And there are a lot of answers in the Bible, oftentimes answers that we're not even aware of. Mm. Gentlemen, I'd like to thank both of you for joining today. Thank you for your feedback. Thank you for the insight that you have brought to this topic. There's a great deal of opinion surrounding what happens after death. Who will go to heaven and even if there is a real hellfire? Many struggle with the idea that a loving God would also condemn billions to hell. And we've talked about that today. Thankfully, the Bible makes plain what happens after death and where believers and unbelievers go when they die. In a nutshell, those few called by God in this life have the potential to be resurrected to eternal spirit life at the return of Jesus Christ. While those not yet called will have their first chance to understand and live by God's way of life at what the Bible alludes to as the second resurrection or the white throne judgment. The encouraging truth is that according to the whole Bible, there are not billions now burning in hell. God truly is merciful, and He is not a liar when He says that He desires all men to be saved. But we don't want you to believe us on this point. We want you to believe your Bible. To help you study this topic, we encourage you to order or download our booklet entitled, Is This the Only Day of Salvation? You can find it through our tomorrowsworld.org website. This is a resource you really want to study and also turn to every scripture it references. To learn more, about what the Bible really says, we encourage you to search our tomorrowsworld.org website and to continue to join us each week on TW Now. Next week, we plan to answer the question, should doctors help their patients die? You won't want to miss it.